0: Hi listeners, Katherine Gorman here. So today's episode is the final episode that we'll be airing during our Kickstarter fund drive. And we are so close, we're almost there to reaching our goal. And you know what that means on Kickstarter, that we get our funding. Because if we don't reach our goal, then we don't get any of the funds that we've we've raised. So I wanted to say, Thank you so much to everyone who's donated to the show. It really means a lot to us, and we feel like we're having a huge impact on how people see machine learning and understand artificial intelligence. And if you haven't donated, please do donate. Um, It's gonna mean that we get to maintain our editorial independence, because the funds that we raise with you, our listeners, allow us to only accept sponsorships from sponsors who really believe in our message and our goal and what we're doing. It allows us to buy some new equipment. It's going to allow us to bring you more of the fantastic interviews that you've enjoyed so much on the show. Most of all, it's going to mean that we get to continue for a second season. Your donation to Talking Machines is part of what will make the show sustainable. So if you can make a donation to our Kickstarter, we would really appreciate it. It's going to mean the difference between having a second season and not. You can find out more information on our Kickstarter at thetalkingmachines.com or search Kickstarter for Talking Machines. Thanks so much. On with the show. You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Katherine
1: Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams.
0: And today, Ryan, you're going to teach us about linear dynamical systems.
1: Yeah, I you know, I think linear dynamical systems are one of these kind of underrated ideas that, um, that machine learning people should be maybe more aware of using more often. Um, they sort of really come from the sort of signal processing community, and they're very old ideas, but they're so important that I, I think it's worth sort of talking a little bit about. And um, linear dynamical systems, you know, you might have encountered if you've taken an intro machine learning course and with the idea of Kalman filtering, which is a particular algorithm for doing inference in a linear dynamical system. Basically, what an LDS is, is a um, a way to reason about structured time series, in particular, where those time series are are sort of uh, multivariate and real valued. This is a little different from a lot of the kind of uh, things you might have seen before, like hidden Markov models. I mean, Technically speaking, linear dynamical systems are hidden Markov models, but most of the time when we think of like an HMM, you think about time-evolving discrete states. And the intuition is that there's some hidden state that is governing what we can see. And if we could kind of infer what that hidden state was and its evolution, then we would know more about the structure of our data. Linear dynamical systems have the same intuition, but rather than latent discrete states, like the numbers one, two, three, four, it's instead a latent real-valued vector. And hmm. this can be interesting because rather than saying, oh, the lights are either on or, or, the, or the lights are off and I just need to estimate this, uh, it's instead saying, well, the lights have varying sort of brightnesses. Or um, maybe what we're trying to do is estimate the motion of some object and it doesn't have a simple discrete sequence of states. It instead has some continuous uh, trajectory through the error or whatever it is. And you'd like to be able to... Um, You know, sort of denoise that, taking advantage of the fact that the object sort of can't teleport from one place to another. So this is used in a lot of different kinds of tracking systems. It's used in various kinds of embedded devices. I I feel quite certain that that devices like I don't know the Wii mote that you would use to play sort of like Wii Sports bowling or whatever. You know, it has a bunch of it has a bunch of you know, MEMS accelerometers inside it and it needs to estimate its motion and its motion is noisy because MEMS accelerators are noisy and, um, and linear dynamical systems are, are a great way to do that kind of estimation. So like a lot of great kinds of probabilistic models, linear dynamical systems have a, uh, a pretty direct generative interpretation. Um, j- so a hidden Markov model, again to remind you, is this idea where we have some discrete state and it evolves according to like a Markov transition matrix. And then each state produces some kind of noisy observation. And so then we consider the different observations that we see conditionally independent given the latent states. And so they kind of uncouple the states and hopefully are some compact representation. Linear dynamical system is a very, very similar idea. Instead of having a uh, discrete state though, we have a latent real valued state. So let's say it's like five dimensional. And the idea is that we imagine that there's some five dimensional state that we can't see. And it evolves by applying a linear transformation to it. So this is kind of maybe rotating it and stretching it uh, in some some direction. And then there's Gaussian noise added to it. And this is a process that just gets repeated over and over again. We take this vector, we sort of apply a linear transformation to it, add noise, and we just do this over and over again. And it gives us a kind of a path through this latent space. And it's nice and real valued and, and maybe has some structure depending on what that depending on what that matrix looks like. And in fact, it turns out that you can apply sort of nice uh, different kinds of stability analysis and different things to this to such processes. And then the idea is that given that latent real valued state, you get visible state. So then there's some other linear transformation that's applied to the latent state. And then Gaussian noise is added to that. And voila, there's your observations. And again, as in the HMM, they're conditionally independent of each other. Given the latent state, but now instead of discrete stuff, we're able to estimate continuous stuff. So, you know, rather than what's the, you know um, Latent utterance that a word, you know, what's the latent word that someone is saying when you get a speech signal instead We can estimate things like trajectories where's my arm? Where is um, you know, what's some what's some continuously valued um, quantity Uh, like other kinds of things you can take advantage of the sort of natural generative generative structure and the sort of modularity of these things to add more and cooler structure onto them so for example one really neat thing you can do is to add an HMM on top of the hidden continuous states and have a switching linear dynamical system so this is something where now we actually do have some discrete state what the discrete state is doing is it's deciding which linear transformation and which uh, Gaussian noise is going to get added to your latent continuous state. So back to our sort of trajectory uh, type uh, type argument, imagine that what we're gonna do is try to estimate how someone is swinging their arm with a Wiimote. And of course, there are several different patterns of motion that someone might swing. Maybe they are doing a bowling motion, or maybe they're doing a tennis racket swinging motion, or maybe they're doing a sword fighting motion. These are sort of discrete states that you'd like to infer, and each of them is characterized by some hopefully continuous and well-behaved dynamics because your arm can't sort of jump around too fast. So you could imagine, though, that maybe you don't necessarily transition directly from sword fighting to bowling, and so you can encode that into a an HMM that's determining the switching, and then the switching is determined the sort of the, the linear dynamical system, which is the physics of the... Um, you know, of the actual sort of continuous variables. And then ultimately we get noisy measurements with our, say, accelerometer on the Wiimote. And this turns out to be a tremendously sort of useful way to view the world. And in um, and it, just to give you a couple of examples, you know, it's been successfully used, for example, to model the way that um, the patients in the ICU might, um, might evolve over time. So you could imagine, for example, that there are some um, kinds of dynamics of, say, heart rate and blood pressure and things like that that are healthy and some that are not so healthy, and that, um, and that these might correspond to latent states of various kinds of very, various kinds of pathologies, basically. And that these pathologies evolve themselves, are kind of discrete and interpretable by a doctor, and then they give rise to fluctuations in dynamics, and then those dynamics give, give rise to noisy observations on an ICU monitor. What you'd like to be able to do is inference of what kinds of states are healthy and not and look and see if a patient's spending a lot of more time in healthy states or unhealthy states and maybe use that to help drive decision-making. Um, and it turns out to be pretty good at this kind of thing. So with collaborators like um, a, at the Harvard Medical School, like Bob Data and Alice Wilsko and Matt Johnson, we've used these kinds of models to, uh, to try to understand quantitatively the way that mice behave under different, say, genetic modifications or... Uh, interesting stimulations of different parts of their brains or just simply changes in their, the, uh, the environment. And the idea is that the mouse is um, going through sort of, has sort of discrete states of behavior, but of course it has low level actual uh, you know, limb mechanics that are characterized by, by some kind of continuous system, but that we'd also like to understand as kind of high level behaviors and, and their evolution. So these are, these are sort of like, like I said, so these are kind of old models, have been around for a while. Um, but that doesn't make them sort of not interesting important. It maybe makes them more interesting and important because they've sort of been tested by time and they, they've seen a lot of different applications. And, and I think they are something that we, we should sort of spend more time thinking about.
0: We'll have more about LDS on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question is about using video games to generate data points.
2: Hello, my name is Kellen. And first of all, I wanna say thanks for the podcast. It's been really enjoyable listening to it so far. My question involves something Hugo brought up last week in the podcast where he mentioned that the issue with supervised learning is that you need tagged data points to train on, and this can be a bit intractable uh, for example, in the image recognition set, which made me think, is there a way we can generate data ourselves so it can be pre-tagged data points for us to train on? So, for example, in video games, there there are millions and millions of scenes, and in each scene, we know what's a dog, what's a cat, what's a tree, etc. And I was wondering if anybody had ever looked at training... Uh, Recognizer using those data points in the video games and testing it on real images and seeing how well that performs.
1: You know, this is a really great idea. And one of the reasons I know it's a great idea is because it works and, and people and people do it. So it's really fun that you thought of this independently. Um, the, uh, and, it, and it's something that couldn't have existed, you know, just a few years ago. It's only been relatively recently that it's been possible to render scenes um, with with high enough quality that the things we learn from them with things like convolutional neural networks and so on would be interestingly relevant um, to actual real natural scenes. Um, And so my impression is, for example, and one of our listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression is that, for example, a lot of the, the, um, the success of the Kinect, actually, the Microsoft Kinect, came from training it in this way, where it was possible to render a large number of poses and um, of people, and then um, and then imagine what the depth map would be and what the observations would be from the sensor device, and then turn that into an estimated pose of a person as an example of exactly what you're describing, where you can put the person, you can render a person in a known pose, perhaps with occlusions or different clothing and different things. And, uh, and then recover that, you know, get good at recovering that as effectively as possible from the noisy sensor measurements. More generally, you know, there's been a lot of interest lately um, in ideas that are called generative vision. So this is where you, um, you try to imagine the state of, um, the physical state of a three-dimensional world. And one way you can evaluate that is by trying to render that and then seeing whether your hypothesis for what the scene looks like um, actually matches then what you've just, um, you know matches the true scene so you you say oh I think there might be a chair in this position in this room and um, and so then you render a chair in the room in that position and look at what the rendering looks like and if that looks a lot like your image then that seems like a pretty reasonable hypothesis so you can imagine kind of generalizing that to richer scenes like a lot of things it's sort of harder than it harder to actually implement than it is to say aloud but it's exactly the same kind of idea. Uh, you want to take advantage of our ability to, um, to render possible hypotheses about um, you know, about physical three-dimensional spaces um, in order to either generate data or to, or to consider um, uh, you know, or to, or to um, actually evaluate in real time the hypothesis. I think it's early days for this because I think it's been only relatively recently that, uh, we really thought in terms of very large data, and we're able to really train models on great big data sets. But also, you know, the difference between the kinds of scenes we can render now and the scenes we could render rapidly, say, ten years ago, is really huge. Um, and one of the things you always worry about when you build this kind of supervised system is that the system is going to learn to take advantage of some weird quirks of the data set. I mean, this is this is something you always have to be very vigilant about. And one worries that um, in you know, rendering scenes in this way that you'll introduce some artifact that makes it very easy for the machine learning system to identify, you know, say, disambiguate two different classes that has nothing to do with the, uh, the actual sort of problem itself. You, I don't know. You could imagine something like um, the, uh, the number of polygons that you have to use to render one kind of object versus another, and this is really just a, an approximation that's necessary to make the renderer work, um, and your machine learning algorithm may be very effective at sort of like counting the polygons. Um, and that will not generalize to a real scene. Um, I'm not saying that specific thing would happen, but that's the kind of thing you have to really be on watch for. And I think it is the main thing that's prevented people from really succeeding with these kinds of systems in the past. But like I said, these days, we're so good at rendering things um, and rendering them quickly that I think this is going to be a big part of, um, of good computer vision systems that we're going to see in the next several years.
0: If you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. Our guest today on Talking Machines is Pedro Domingos from the University of Washington. He's just had a book published called The Master Algorithm. When we sat down with him, the first question we asked him is the first question we ask everybody. How did you get where you are?
3: Yeah, well, um, I majored in computer science, which in retrospect was a really good career move. And, <laughs> and uh, one day I was at a bookstore and I saw this book with a very weird title. It was called Artificial Intelligence. And I was like, hmm, what could that be? I just couldn't see what artificial <laughs> intelligence could mean. So uh, I read the book. This was actually the first ever, you know, AI textbook, I believe, by Elaine Rich. And, and I was immediately hooked. First of all, I was fascinated by the problems. And then I was struck by how primitive the state of things was. This was back in the 80s. And in particular, they had a chapter on machine learning that I thought was, oh my god, they don't know what they're doing. Very modestly, I thought that maybe you know I could actually um, help you know improve the state of the art. Because in my mind, at least from reading the book, it was so backward. And so I decided to get a PhD in machine learning. Um, I was very determined that it'd be machine learning because I was convinced that machine learning would take over the world. <laughs> and Now it actually has, <laughs> which is kind of mind-boggling. Uh, so yeah, so I, I, and so once I decided to get a PhD in machine learning, I set about you know, finding out where uh, you know, machine learning research could be had. And, and there were actually only two places, I, th- I think, at the time that had a sizable machine learning group. One was Carnegie mm. Mellon, and the other one mm-hmm. was UC Irvine. I applied to both. I didn't get into Carnegie Mellon. Uh, I got into UC Irvine. And mm-hmm. then, you know, halfway through my PhD there, the whole f- this kind of like the first data mining explosion happened. This was circa 1995. Mm-hmm. And, and really, I never looked back. So, uh, you know, I got this job here at at the University of Washington. And, and I've been doing research in machine learning ever since.
0: So tell me a little bit more about your work at the University of Washington. Tell me about your lab and what you focus on.
3: Yeah, so um, we really have, I mean, I've done a whole variety of things, but but most recently, we've really been focusing on two things. Uh, One of them is statistical relational learning, and the other one is deep learning. Uh, Mm -hmm. So the idea in statistical relational learning is that um, I think in order to do machine learning really well, you really need to combine a number of things. Two of, one of them is statistical learning, right? So there's a lot of work on statistical learning, which is basically learning, you know, using probability and statistics, uh, representations that have to do with them, like graphical models. Uh, And those are very good at handling uncertainty and noise and ambiguity, which, you know, the real world is full of. On the other hand, uh, you need uh, things like um, first-order logic and relational learning because, the world is full of objects and relations between them and events, and pure statistical representations are not very good at dealing with this because they assume that all your data points are independent, which is very far from the case in the real world. So statistics and probability can handle the uncertainty. First-order logic and relational representations can handle, um, you know, the complexity of the world. And so our goal, you know, has been to marry the two. We have this representation called Markov logic networks which is the leading approach in this area and then we've done a lot of work on generalizing the representation coming up with learning algorithms for it both weight learning and structure learning and even in, you know more ambitious things like transfer learning and and you know predicate invention and so forth and also inference algorithms right so one of the big problems in this is that the inference becomes very hard and so we've also put a lot of work into that. The other main thing that we've been working on in recent years is deep learning which of course <laughs> needs no introduction these days. <laughs> uh we we have uh you know, no kidding. Um we have uh, an approach that is a little bit different from you know things like convolutional neural networks and uh you know autoencoders and stuff like that it's called some product networks and and it's it 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 has the advantage with that first of all it's a probabilistic representation so you can do all of the things with it that you can do with probabilistic representations. Uh, and it's sort of like very principled and clean, but at the same time, the inference is always tractable, which mm. you know in a lot of these deep models is is a huge problem. So those are the two main things that that we've been working on, and then you know applications in things like natural language, vision, the web, and so forth.
0: And you have uh, a book coming out, the Master Algorithm, which is being billed as the essential guide for anyone and everyone wanting to understand not just how the revolution will happen, but be at its forefront. So. When is the revolution going to happen, and how can we be at its forefront?
3: Well, so, first of all, what is the machine learning revolution, right? The machine learning revolution is that, you know, actually, let me just borrow the words of, you know, someone, you know, from, from your neck of the woods, Eric Brinjolfsson, right? Um, you know, he and, and, and Andrew McAfee have done all this, you know, great work on, you know, what digitization and automation are doing to the economy. and 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 he said, you know, recently, I think this was in a Harvard Business Review interview, that There are really two stages to the information age. The -hmm. first, so we live in the information age, right, with all that that implies. And in the first stage of the information age, people programmed computers to do what they wanted, right? This is how we got used to things happening. Mm -hmm. The problem with this is that it's extremely, uh, uh, you know, it's a lot of work. It's very time-consuming, It's very expensive, it limits the rate of progress, you know, there's bugs, there's, you know, complexity, there's all sorts of things. And then there's a lot of things that we want computers to do, like seeing and understanding language that we actually don't know how to program them to do. The second phase of the information age, which is the phase that we are now uh, starting to see, is the machine learning phase. It's when the computers, instead of having to be programmed, they actually program themselves by learning from data. Mm -hmm. And this is an extremely powerful thing if we can make it happen. Because now computers can do, you know, a lot more than they could before, a lot faster. Uh, Also, they can do things that we potentially, as I said, didn't even know how to program them. And a lot of, of what's driving the revolution, of course, is that we have ever more data. And the more data we have, the more the computers can learn given the same amount of effort from us. We also have more powerful computers, right? We have servers, we have, you know, server farms, we have... GPUs, et cetera, et cetera. And now the role of machine learning is to develop the algorithms that can, you know, turn those computing cy- cycles and that data into really smart things like, you know, programs that can translate, you know, languages for you or, or um, uh, you know, that can predict the stock market, that can recommend books, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the revolution that's happening today. And it's a revolution that I think touches everybody in almost every aspect of their lives. You know, it's like if you, lo- if you look at your day- life day by day and year by year, Machine learning at this point is involved in almost every part of it, and I think it's very important for people to first of all know this and second of all have at least a conceptual model of how machine learning works so that they can make the most of it and really a lot of the goal of the book is to you know uh uh you know um tell people about this you know amazing thing of machine learning and 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 w- and what it can do and 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 how can they can make the best of it both in their personal and professional lives
0: yeah, I think. Th- one of the things, in particular, about machine learning, uh, the public conversation about machine learning today, is that it's it's filled with a lot of um, hyperbole and a, and a lot of concern about um, issues that aren't aren't really things that we need to think about think about now because the research isn't isn't there in a place where they should they should be worrying us. What do you think are the fundamental things that the public needs to know about the reality of machine learning research in order for them to have to have a workable model that they can carry around in their heads and, and use when, when they find machine learning touching their lives or when they'd like to use it themselves.
3: Yeah, exactly. So as you say, the, in, in a way the hyperbole and the concerns you know go together, you know the, both the positive and the negative side, but they both run a little bit ahead of reality. Right. Mm. So one of the things that I'd like is for sort of like the public discourse on machine learning to be more informed by what machine learning really is and what it can't and can't do and what and, and you know where we can expect it to go in the next several years. Right. A lot of people, you know, first of all, I think many people, um, even in the media, when they talk about machine learning, they're not really sure what it's about, right? Mm-hmm. You sometimes get the sense that machine learning is just, you know, finding these correlations between pairs of variables like You know, people do more searches for the flu on Google, and therefore there's a flu epidemic, right? (laughs) Machine learning is a much richer thing than that, right? Machine learning is really computers learning to program themselves. So the computer can learn, in principle, anything if it has the right learning algorithm and and the right data. It can learn, for example, to model you and your tastes and what you want and, and, and what you're looking for. And so one of the things that, you know, I think it's important for people to know that they don't realize these days is that every time you interact with a computer, which is pretty much continuously these days, right? Whether (laughs) it's your cell phone or, you know, or your laptop or even things that don't apparently have computers in them, like, you know, like cars and houses, but actually do these days, is that you're actually continuously teaching the computers what you're like. Mm -hmm. So the computers are continuously learning from you, right? Every click that you make on Amazon teaches Amazon something about you right and and then, and then the results of that come back to you because Amazon decides that you're interested in this or you're or you're not interested in that based on those things that you do, so people I think should be aware that that's happening and then uh, and you know and have a rough idea of, of how it happens right, and you know one one very rough idea of how it happens is that the computer is trying to generalize from the things that you've done to the things that you might do right it's trying mm-hmm. to predict what you do, really like intelligence is really, uh, you know, an ability to predict uh, what's going to happen and then to act accordingly. And the computer is trying to do exactly the same, right? So it's trying to figure out, well, uh, if you, you know, bought this book and that then book, then, then, you know, then what other books might you like, right? If you just right. bought a Nirvana CD, you might like their, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, um, you know a biography of them and, and, and so forth, right? So you have to understand that this is actually what's going on. And then I think, you know, part of what I'd like to see is people to become more, once they become conscious of this, then they should become very unhappy with the status quo because, you know, the computer in a way is not very smart because it doesn't know that much about you and you can't tell it things directly, right? It just has to Mm -hmm. infer them, which often leads to a lot of mistakes. You should be able to have a more explicit and richer interaction with machine learning systems. Like you should be able to tell Amazon, "Uh, actually, no, I just bought a watch. I don't want to see another one right Right. (laughs) things like that so yeah so that's that's part of what i'm hoping the book will help to happen is for people to have that greater awareness of machine learning on the other hand you know there's like these fears that you know computers are going to get very smart and you know and then you know suddenly they'll become conscious and then you know and they'll take over the world and enslave us or destroy us you know like terminator and this is completely (laughs) absurd right even though it's completely absurd, you see a lot of it in the, in the media these days, right? You see these articles right. about AI, you know, illustrated by pictures from the Terminator. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, one of one thing that actually a lot of people who've, you know, uh, uh, read preprints of, of the book have said, you know, people in AI is that like, uh, this is great because I think once people see what machine learning really is like and what it can and can't do, you know, th- this whole idea of having, you know, you know, Skynet will just, you know, be seen as the ridiculous thing that it is. <laughs>
0: So what do you think is the responsibility of those in the field and in the industry um, of of machine learning to educate the public? I mean, the book sounds like a first great step, <laughs> right, to, to actually bringing the public conversation more in line with what's actually happening. But what else can be done and what else should we be asking of the community?
3: Yeah, that is a great question. And in fact, in some ways, partly I wrote this book for the public, but partly you know, I wrote it to nudge the community in the right direction. I think, you know, it's easy to bag on journalists and say they don't understand machine learning or, you know, this and that and the other, but but the truth is mostly it's our fault. We haven't done a good job of explaining machine learning to people. In fact, I think sometimes in the field we almost revel in things being very mathematical and jargon-filled and obscure mm. because it makes us feel smarter and more important. <laughs> That's a complete mistake, right? So I think our first responsibility is, is to be able to communicate, you know, machine learning in simple and clear terms, which it can. There's mm. a lot of math in machine learning, but the key ideas are really things that anybody can understand. And, you know, they relate to things in evolution and neuroscience and psychology. And it's something that any, you know, uh, educated and informed person can understand. You know, 20 years ago, machine learning was an obscured field, and maybe this wasn't an issue. But these days, when machine learning is in the front pages of newspapers all the time, uh, we really need to do a better job of that. So this, this is one thing. Right. The other thing is that I think we in machine learning have the responsibility to engage in all these discussions that um, you know that machine learning is now involved in, like you know privacy and you know the future of work and mm-hmm. you know the potential of algorithms to have you know negative effects, to discriminate, to do you know things like that. Uh, what the dangers are, what the, what the you know possibilities are. We can't complain that the discussion is not very informed, or that there's too much hype or that, you know, there's too much fear if we don't ourselves bring to the table our expertise to try to contribute to the debate. At the same time, we have to understand that the debate, you know, is once something becomes socially important like machine learning, is not just driven by the experts, right? So we have a contribution to make, but we also have to listen very carefully to what, you know, other people say, hmm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. citizens, uh, you know, policymakers. Uh, people from other fields like, you know, sociology and economics, Uh, we have to listen to what they say. And I think our research and what we do needs to be informed by what we learn to make sure that, you know, not just that machine learning progresses in terms of the basic algorithms, but that it goes in the right direction in terms of, you know, being useful, you know, for for human beings.
0: Definitely. And how how do you propose what do you see as the future of that i mean uh, machine learning one of the, the huge trends has been to simply overflow into other fields and use machine learning techniques to to address questions in in other departments but is there is there a for, more formal way to structure that i mean usually i or the way that I see academia is, is uh, a variety of silos for, for different fields asking different questions, and the unique thing about ML is that it's been able to flow into these other silos, but how do we formalize that or, or institutionalize it so we are listening to the questions that, that other people have?
3: Yeah, exactly, so uh, um, I agree with you. Uh, in fact, this is a lot of what makes machine learning fun, right? is that as somebody said, you can play in everybody's backyard. And, you know, and you can <laughs> remain a dilettante for life, which, you know, what could be better? And on <laughs> top of that, you, the computer is actually doing all the hard work for you. So, so it is a great life. But, the, you know, but, but more seriously, uh, it is, you know, um, in a way, I think what, mach- what, what has happened with machine learning today is, is what happened with, you know, math, you know, in the past. It's, it's become this common language that mm. a lot of different fields speak. And in fact, often ideas can flow from one field to another via machine learning. Because because these fields are silos and they are unfortunately, people often don't know how to talk to each other. But these days they all have to talk to machine learning people. And, mm-hmm. and as a result of which, you know, machine learning is kind of acting like a switchboard that allows ideas to flow from one field to another. And this is great, right? And it's actually remarkable, both looking at, you know, the history of, of what's happened so far and some things that are being done today, how much, you know, ideas that were born in molecular biology can bear fruit in social networks or, or you know, pick any two. Now, as you say, uh, uh, as much as we can, we want to foster this, and maybe part of that is putting in in place the structures that will make it happen. And, you know, there are several ways that this can be done, but one that I think is happening, and, you know, I'll give you an example here at UW. We have something called the eScience Institute, uh, where the idea is to have, you know, you have a machine learning core, not just machine learning, but databases, visualization, things like that. And then you have all, you know, and sort of like, this comes mostly from departments like computer science and, and, and statistics. But then you have also you know, what you might call the customer fields, you know things like you know biology, oceanography, atmospheric science, astronomy, sociology, and so on and so forth.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think
3: with a structure like that, you know, we can get people talking. And um, I think what's going to happen over time, and, and in fact this is already starting to happen, is that each of these fields will develop its own version of machine learning and its own algorithms and ideas that are most useful to it. Mm. Uh, uh, at the time, at the, at this point, what we actually have is all these fields are sort of like just applying your off-the-shelf machine learning algorithms, which you know machine learning people often scoff at, but it's actually very good. You know that already does a lot of useful stuff. But I think, in a way, in the long run, um, this kind of like off-the-off-the-shelf machine learning will be less important for each of these fields. And what will be important is for people to understand how you develop learning algorithms for your problem. And again, this mm. is part of what I try to do in the book, right? I've seen a lot of textbooks, you know, they're fine, but they're often just like this list of algorithms and this list of techniques. And, you know, in five or 10 years, they'll probably be outdated. And, and you know, and anyway, they're probably in the long run not useful for particular applications because there'll be something better. So what is important is for, for both machine learning people and people in these fields to understand you know, here's my problem. Here's how I'm going to represent it. Here I was going, here's how I'm going to learn from data, and they will probably be coming up with their own new algorithm. And so, what they have to have is the key ideas that let them do that. And of course, we can illustrate them with some of today's algorithms. But those ideas are the thing that actually has a very long half-life, as opposed to you know the latest greatest you know learning technique that was published yesterday.
0: Hmm. Hmm. I think also one way that the the field is expanding, sort of in a mirror of the the uh tailored algorithms that you suggest tailored for to each field that's asking these questions is that there's a there's a huge influx of industry interest into machine learning which is one of the reasons that it touches so many people's daily lives what do you see as the impact of of industry on the academic field of machine learning
3: yeah that's a great question uh, in fact you know um we used to joke that ai could make very uh you know could make good progress, and we could have a lot of fun because it was unencumbered by real-world applications, like say <laughs> databases and networking, which you know have you know industries behind them that they need to cater to. And now with machine learning, very much we have huge uh, industry interest, and um, this has actually both good and bad aspects. The good aspect is that because there is so much at stake for a lot of these companies in machine learning, they're willing to really uh, in, invest in it, and and we'll see a lot of progress because of that, right? You know, for example three-quarters of Netflix's business comes from their recommender system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and a third of, 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 of Amazon's, you know, sales come from their recommender system, supposedly. So so these, you know, these things are not, you know, um, secondary to industry, which is part of why, they've, you know, th- there has been so much investment. And so on the one hand, this is good because it means there will be a lot of progress and there will be a lot of real-world impact, which is what we're looking for at the end of the day. Um on the other hand, you know, it's it's important to manage this all well so that we don't wind up, for example, with um, a lot of the, the tendency for the work in industry, of course, is, is for it to be incremental, right? Because it's just trying mm-hmm. to come up with the next better solution to the problem. And what we're seeing a lot these days is that because there's so much money uh, to be made in industry and, you know, and so much impact, a lot of people are just, you know, particularly the more applied machine learning people are all flowing to industry. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, mm-hmm. this is great on the other hand, what it means is that in academia, we're maybe left to sort of like more sort of like just the theoretical side of machine learning, which of course also has a very important part to play, but it would be better if things got out of balance. A lot of the success of machine learning has come from the fact that there really is a theoretical and an empirical component, and there's a, there's a, there's a close interaction between them, right? People try out algorithms, and, and if they work, uh, and you know, the test of a new theoretical idea is whether it really works in practice. And it's very important to keep that loop going and not let things break, for example, into you know so like a bunch of incremental work in industry than by the applied people, and then a bunch of theoretical work in academia that becomes increasingly relevant because this is something that that can happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want to return to to the question of uh, machine learning versus artificial intelligence with your new book coming out. What would you say to a non-expert who's been reading a lot of, of the public conversation that conflates machine learning and artificial intelligence with each other? How do you explain the difference?
3: Yeah, exactly. Again, there's, there's a lot of confusion you know, on this, right? A lot of people don't realize what the relationship between the two is. And again, we haven't done a very good job of, of, uh, of explaining it to people. Machine learning is a subfield of artificial intelligence. Right, so they are not the same thing, and they're also not disjoint things. You know, some people think they're the same, and some people think they actually have nothing to do with each other. You know, machine learning is like these algorithms for prediction that Google and and Amazon use, and AI is like you know robots or something like that. So, <laughs> so artificial, in, right? Artificial intelligence is really a broad field that is concerned with you know with making computers do the things that we normally associate with intelligence, uh, you know, like problem solving. Uh, you know like vision like you know language understanding and and one of those things that characterizes human intelligence, perhaps the single most important one is the ability to learn to learn to get better with experience. And so machine learning is really the subfield of, of AI that deals with that particular c- capability, which is the ability to learn. Now what has happened you know in the last you know decade or two is that machine which was not the case before is that machine learning has really become, in some sense, the hub of AI. It's the mm-hmm. field that all other fields use to do what they do. Everybody who does vision or natural language processing or whatever these days is using machine learning. Uh, and you know, and 20 years ago, you know, for the most part, nobody was. Uh, in fact, you know, back in the 70s, machine learning was basically dead and people just used these you know, uh, automated reasoning and knowledge representation approaches. So machine learning these days is a very central field in AI. It is at the root of a lot of its successes, uh, you know, meaning, you know, without machine learning, things like self-driving cars and Watson and all these things would, would not have happened. Uh, so you know, one kind of like underpins the other, um, but you know, but they are different things, right? It's not like, you know, sometimes people talk about AI and machine learning as if they were just the same thing. And, and you know, there's a lot of AI that is not machine learning, even if it uses machine learning.
0: So you you recently received award at HKai. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the work for that?
3: Yeah, so uh, we got the Distinguished uh, Paper Award at Itchkai. This was for work that we did on, on this problem of optimization, right, which is really, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, machine learning uh, boils down to optimization, right? So to design a learning algorithm, you have three parts, right? First, you have to choose a representation, right? Is it going to be mm-hmm. neural networks or is it going to be rules or is it going to be, you know, a support vector machine, et cetera, et cetera? And then you have some sort of, um, you know, evaluation function. How well am I doing, right? How well does a particular neural network, you know, uh, reproduce the data and avoid overfitting? And then finally, once you have those two things, you know, most of the work boils down to optimization or search, which is the problem of finding the particular, you know, parameters of the neural network or the particular set of rules that, that best does what you want it to do. And in fact, optimization is also, uh, you know, a very important problem, not just in machine learning, but throughout AI uh, uh, and throughout science and technology and business, right? Uh, You know, a factory wants to make as many widgets of a certain kind using the available (laughs) machinery and resources. That's an optimization problem
2: in -hmm. science,
3: right? You know, the universe is solving an optimization problem, which is to maximize entropy subject to keeping the energy constant. So, you know, optimization is, is a very important and widespread problem. And, you know, there's, there's three main kinds of optimization. There's combinatorial optimization, which is things like solving puzzles, right? A lot of what AI does very well. And then there's continuous optimization, which is you want to find the optimal values of numeric variables, uh, which, again, is very widespread in, in, in engineering and, 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 and science and, and so forth. And then there's constrained optimization, which is in some ways is, is a combination of those two. And now, what the paper is about is actually it's borrowing ideas from combinatorial optimization to solve uh, continuous optimization better. Hmm. So, uh, despite the fact that you know optimization is very intensively researched, there are only a few major techniques in continuous optimization. The most important one being gradient descent and more powerful variations of it. And then there's things like you know simulated annealing and whatnot. And the problem with those techniques is that they work fine if the optimization problem is simple but they fail when it's complex mm. and you know uh, let me give you a, an example of this right optimization is really like um, being blindfolded and set you know at the foot of the Himalayas and said you know find your way to the top of Mount Everest
0: <laughs> right
3: Right. And, then, and so what do you do right you want to find that peak right that's your optimization problem what you probably do is like you know you feel around with your foot and then you take a step you know up the steepest slope right mm-hmm. that's what gradient descent is and then you keep taking steps until all, all, all you can take are downward steps, and then you stop there. Now, if if you're on the foot of, of one smooth hill, that will mm-hmm. get you to the top. But if you're at the foot of the Himalayas, this is hopeless, right? You just get stuck on a foothill. And then there's various things that you can do to try to, you know, you, you, you can try, for example, bounce around a little bit. So maybe you'll jump over some hillocks that way. But really, for a lot of the hard and the important optimization problems that we have, this is very inadequate. And so what we have in our paper is... is you know, essentially a, a, a completely new approach to solving these problems by borrowing ideas from, uh, from AI. And the basic idea that we're borrowing is, is a very natural one, which is the idea of, uh, uh, you know, problem decomposition. The way we solve problems is, uh, is by breaking the up map into sub-problems and then solving each of the sub-problems and combining the results and then, you know, breaking the sub-problems into sub-sub-problems, etc., until the individual atomic problems that we're solving are very simple. And we know how to do this very well in the case of, you know, uh, discrete optimization, things like solving puzzles. But in the case of continuous optimization, it's not clear how to do that. And what we did essentially was was to figure out how to bring these ideas over. And because we can break uh, prog- pro- uh, problems into sm- smaller problems this way, we can often solve problems exponentially better. Mm. So, you know, we had some results on problems like, um, you know, protein folding, and, uh, um, uh, um, you know, reconstruction of of, 3D, uh, uh, of the 3D world from 2D images, uh, where we do um, orders of magnitude better than, than, than the previous approaches. So, uh, so, yeah, it's very exciting.
0: That's fascinating. So where are you going to take it next? Are you going to be applying it to more biological concepts?
3: Well, so there are several uh, ways to go, uh, directions to go with this. Uh, one is, you know, this is just the first step in what hopefully will be you know uh, a significant new direction optimization there's many more improvements and ideas to try in terms of the algorithms but as you say uh, we also want to try this on more problems uh, one problem that's very important that we've successfully tried on is protein folding mm-hmm. uh, you know you want the protein folding is a problem of predicting the 3d shape of a protein from the sequence of amino acids mm-hmm. and if we're able to do this then we can design drugs by computer much, much faster than, than in the lab, right? So it's something with with huge uh, practical importance. It's also an extraordinarily difficult um, optimization problem. Uh, we've had good success, but only on the sub-problem of the problem, which is once I know the shape of what is called the backbone of the protein, then where do the rest of the, you know, what are called the residues, the rest of the parts of the amino acids fall? Mm-hmm. But what we'd really like to do is solve the whole, you know, ab initio problem of protein folding, which is, you know, here's the, you know, here's a sequence of amino acids, tell me how it will fold. So that's one thing that we would like to do. And and we would also like to do uh, other applications, uh, like, you know, vision and robotics. Again, we've, we've done one early application in vision, but, you know, vision and robotics are, I think, quintessentially good applications for an algorithm like ours, because they are both continuous, right? It's a mm-hmm, continuous mm-hmm. world, but they're also extremely combinatorial, right? There are these mm-hmm. sort of like combinations of things that then, gen- discrete things, like objects and their poses that gen- generate the continuous data that you see.
0: Pedro Domingos of the University of Washington. I I read the book and I really recommend it if you're interested awesome. in a um, a more detailed but still layperson introduction to machine learning.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to take a look myself.
0: Yeah, so that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman
1: and I'm Ryan Adams.
0: Join us next episode.